This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we have on Sam Moyne, uh, who's a historian and law professor at Yale. I've known him for a long time. Um, he's a brilliant guy, an extraordinarily brilliant guy. And we're going to talk about the Never Trump movement and the future Biden administration. Fun. Okay, so today we've got Sam Moyne. Um, we're so excited for you to be here today. He's the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and also a uh, professor of history at Yale. He's the author of many books, um, including a trilogy on hu- the history of human rights. Uh, the last volume is called Not Enough, uh, Human Rights in an Unequal World. It's really good. You should read it. Published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Um and in addition to all of your academic contributions, Sam, you've got uh, a lot of stuff that you write in the popular press. So New York Times, uh, the New Republic, Nation, Guardian, name just a few. Um, so thanks so much for coming on. I'm psyched to have you on in particular because Sam and I go back a long time, back to Columbia days when I was his TA um, for, wow. uh, for a couple of classes. You didn't tell yeah, I don't me know that. if you, I don't know if you know, you knew no, that. You didn't yeah. tell me it was an honor and a privilege. So oh my it's, God. Are you it's... kidding? So I, I think I learned as much in TAing that class as I learned in like all of my other classes in graduate school. So that was oh. just, it was amazing. Uh, so, so psyched to have you. Um, what I wanted to talk about today is, and we're going to get to, there's some elements that I think have some crossover with Not Enough, uh, with some Great. of the stuff you've been writing about uh, recently. But there's two pieces, one that came out in the New Republic in August, which was a book review called The Never Trumpers Have Already Won. And Tony and I been, have been talking about you know, our mutual hatred of the Lincoln Project and, and, and their whole approach. Um, and you, you say just, I think, some amazing things there. And one of the things that we kind of hit upon um, was that, first of all, their tone's really annoying. It's very sort of self-righteous, and, and it's really in service of being self-aggrandizing. But what's really kind of animating the Never Trump movement, and it's a kind of grandiose term for just a bunch of like, think tank people and stuff, but let's just call it that, um, is that there's a kind of anxiety with them about Trump's sort of brief moments of truth telling. So it's not so much his lies that worry them so much because, you know, there's a long history of uh, tradition of lying uh, in both parties, but certainly the Republicans make no bones about it. But um, it's the moments when he's like the Iraq war was a mistake. <laughs> when when, when um, the economic globalization, the way it's unfolded, has not been very good uh, to the working classes of the United States. Those sort of things are really sort of galling. Um, and now, of course, we know Trump did nothing to actually address these problems, but he was able to sort of hit upon them and make sort of, you know, political hay out of them. So what do you think, you know, if that's the case, what do you think is the danger of this group now that Biden is, you know, likely, you know, it's still not totally up in the air, but it's likely he's going to be inaugurated and is creating cabinet and so on. Um, what do you think is their what their role is going to be now? So, you know, I absolutely agree with with your analysis of of how we got here. Um you know, turning the clock back to the heady days of, you know, 20 
16, first of all, when Donald Trump was, uh, you know, standing down, you know, as a laughingstock, all of his supposedly serious Republican rivals and said on the debate stage in South Carolina that, you know, he didn't support the Iraq war and George W. Bush had been a failed president. Now that was utterly taboo amongst Republicans and especially in the leadership. And they left him a huge opportunity to, you know, present as a kind of, you know, not anti-war, but, you know, smart war candidate, which was taking a page from Barack Obama, uh, you know, Mm. eight years before. Um, and again, don't don't do stupid shit. Exactly. No dumb wars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, Hillary Clinton got beat, not by Barack Obama this time through that move, but by Donald Trump. (laughs) But with, with regard to the never Trumpers, it's, you know, the book I reviewed, which is, has a, a lot of interest in it. Although like, I think it's framed wrong you know, they reveal very clearly, somewhat inadvertently, that that shock of, of of Trump, you know, attacking the Iraq war within Republican circles was was kind of like drove the creation of the never Trump crew. Um, now, in fairness, you know, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but Trump's policies on this front, as opposed to on kind of the economic neoliberalism front, did change things just because the president has a lot of power, even relative to like his own party in war and peace, whereas like, you know, he couldn't do as much, maybe didn't want to do as much on economics. Now, um, you know, my view is that as a result of 2020, um, although like, you know, the, the relevance of the never Trumpers was, you know, dismissed and centrist liberals said, you know, we, we accept to help anywhere we can get it when we're standing down fascism. Um, at worst, these guys are ineffectual, you know, um, and certainly there's not going to be a debt they call in, but now we know that Biden won, especially relative to other Democrats down ballot in suburbs amongst wealthy, you know, never Trump Republican voters. And I don't see how we can't don't conclude that there's a big debt to be called in because Biden chose a route to victory that involved a kind of never Trump centrist strategy. And so we can't be surprised then that the consequence is shutting out the left. Now, we can debate, you know, how how that's happening already, whether it will happen, whether there will be also moves left. I mean, like the, the Biden, you know, platform and so forth was unprecedentedly, you know, progressive in various ways. But in personnel policy in these early days, I think we see a kind of restorationist agenda, which is, of course, the never Trump agenda. I think the 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 even more worrying thing, of course, is that the never Trumpers did not get Biden um, to execute a kind of decapitation move in their own former party. So that that sucks even worse in a sense because w- w- they're still Democrats, 
you know, they they were strategically Democrats for, you know, a while hoping to get the aid of the Democrats and getting their own party back, namely the Republican Party, but it didn't work. So now we've not only got Biden owing them an electoral debt in the short term, but in the medium or longer term, it doesn't seem like they can get the Republican Party back. And so we're kind of stuck with them. And, you know, it's an it's potentially an albatross. And I think we have to be very wary. That's OK. So two things that come up based on what you said. Um, one is that I'm I, I'm surprised to hear about the the electoral debt, as you, as you put it, um, because I've also read so much other stuff saying that these guys it's it's just one grift. Uh, that's about laundering their terrible reputations um, and through this Trump washing um, and that really, you know, it's it's on the ground mobilizations in in various states, um, it didn't, indigenous peoples in Arizona, say, and um, the black community in in uh, Georgia uh, that that sort of pushed the needle at the last moment and it's not sort of. The Lincoln Project putting an ad out in Times Square, you know, which is already blue, <laughs> you, know, like, right. you know, so, right. so, so that's, that's, that's surprising. And I've, and it's funny that you mentioned this because I've gotten emails from, you know, I'm sure all of us are being, still being barraged with emails, like political emails. And I've been getting multiple emails from the Democratic National Committee saying, sign this petition to thank the Lincoln Project. Right. Right. You know, that this that we need we, we need to sort of pay them uh, homage in some way. So that's that's shocking and depressing. Um, but the other thing I wanted, if you could develop this a little bit more, is that you mentioned that Trump's approach to war and peace is markedly different um, from the last presidency. So could you just elaborate that? a little Sure. Bit? So so on on the first point, you know, it, it's clearly a messy picture. And, you know, we, we could have a debate about the viability of making inferences from, you know, um, exit polls, you know, how can we do better and so forth. But it, it's clearly the case that um, it's a messy picture and Biden owes a lot of constituencies debts. Um, but if I think the general story that's appeared is that in many states, um, what was decisive um was not necessarily um, kind of the the you what you would think are the core constituencies of the Democrats, but um, you know suburbanites crossing party lines. You know they they voted for Republicans often, if not traditionally, and they put him over the top. And in, 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 in and while your point about Georgia is absolutely correct, as far as I can tell, you know, Biden came near in other states like Texas, in part because of what uh, Matt Carp has called, you know, Halliburton liberals. Right, um, right. And I think, you know, the election analysts are seeing like in a, a, a pretty amazing shift towards Biden, you know, not down ballot kind of by this kind of crew and so we can call them functionally never trump republicans um now th there's a whole lot else to say about like the 2020 election that we, we won't get into on this front because they're the, the never trumpers are only one facet uh, of it you know the the astounding fact that you know the only group 
uh, Trump did worse with in, in 2020 than in 2016 as white males, and that he did better with women in general, as well as various kinds of minorities, um, ethnic and racial, is, is just a staggering thing because right. it shows that the general centrist delegitimation strategy from 2016 to 2020, which is kind of a broad never Trump um, platform, attracts some people, but it made no difference to others. Or they even crossed, you know, party lines themselves to vote for Trump in spite of the fact that he was denounced daily um, as beyond the uh, beyond the pale fascist racist and yet more black people voted for him after all that um so anyway i don't know if you want to go there on and war muslims. and peace and i saw and muslims as well and muslims uh yeah, yeah absolutely it's <laughs> now you know these are all relative statements right so you know it's not like even if it turns out to be true that we're talking about huge numbers of black males but it's a staggering thing that never trump works for rich white people better seemingly than it does for working class ethnic and racial minorities which is just it's it's like astounding right because it tells us that this is elite messaging and it works for elites not masses and that is you know masses of you know Halliburton liberals um so like i think there's you know we're we're at the beginning of these postmortems and of course it's there's always self-interest in reading the tea leaves um but you know it doesn't look good for never trumpers to be able to claim that victory um but if they can then you know biden does owe them a debt because you know you owe you know those who brought you to the dance okay on war and peace um all i meant to say is that it seems as if what we can now say is that um trump's campaign noises about withdrawal were genuine um and we know that because he struggled hard against the bureaucrats and the military and is doing so right now in the face of quite extraordinary opposition from the blob and so forth um and you know stuck it out um and i think you know we're we're now seeing that he understands how well that issue played with veterans and some kind of Americans fatigued with imperial responsibilities and so forth. Now, you know, the truth is that he was never an anti-war candidate. Um, and I think the saddest irony, which I'm exploring in this new book I have coming out in the fall, is that he actually is just Bush and Obama only more so in the sense that the later George W. Bush understands he's made a grievous error, draws down troops in Iraq, um, turns to drones, and Obama makes that his signature, drawing down troops even further. Immediately in Iraq, first there's a surge, but eventually he goes big on, on the end of heavy footprint war and the turn to no and light footprint war, not just through drones, but special forces. And Trump is just doing that to an extreme that Bush and even Obama would not reach, um, leaving troops various places and putting some, you know, prudential, um, not moral or legal limits on on the shadow war. Uh, and so I think the very scary thing is that you get like um, 
you know, progress in, 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 on one front with Trump, which has to be genuine given how the struggle he's been put to and continuity, you know, an exacerbation on the, this other front of the shadow war, which is, you know, in many ways, even scarier, I think, than the, um, the, you know, bad, heavy footprint wars that have been thoroughly rejected by the American people, if not by, you know, the beltway sages. Right, right. I mean, the, do you think the reason for that is because the burden falls upon, you know, the masses, the people that, that the poor people have to send their sons um, for these heavy footprint wars and, and therefore you get the illusion of safety and security uh, by mechanizing this thing, right? And Absolutely. Sort of... You know, the new form of American war, you know, it's it's long in process, but it took, the, it's really quantum leap forward under Obama is um, immunize Americans against risk, both as victims um, of terrorism, quote unquote, but also as soldiers, um, and then claim that the, the humanity of your policies is just, you know, leaves the whole world better off. So, you know, Obama in his Nobel Peace Prize speech and in his drone speech, you know, his 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 most kind of morally intense comments are, look, my alternative was not no war. It was heavy footprint. But you don't want that. Not only do Americans not want that, the world doesn't. So, you know, just remember that I'm following the law in, you know, um, making sure, you know, that to minimize civilian casualties. So like, I I'm a good person, you know, and um, again, Trump's legacy is to just like, take the Obama position to its logical conclusion. Um, and, you know, the the there's one exception to that in Africa, you know, because Obama spread drone bases way deep into sub-Saharan Africa. And um, Trump also, you know, not just in Somalia, where he's pulling out troops, but in general seems to be, you know, kind of draw, drawing down the AFRICOM strategy. But, you know, the, the more general thing is that he's, you know, engaged in far more reliance on drones and special forces and to some extent taking the gloves off. Um, relative to Obama, even though he retained Obama's extraordinary rule that drones and special forces can't strike outside areas of active hostilities, if there's even a, a minimal chance, any chance of civilian um, death or injury, which is totally extraordinary because mm -hmm. that's not what the law of war requires. Um, Obama said that's what extraterritorial assassination requires. And drone and and Trump kept that requirement, which is kind of astounding. Mm -hmm. um, it tells us a lot about like the optics of the shadow war. It's like that war is being pitched as like moral and reasonable, right? That 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 approach. Um, and I remember reading all this stuff when I think the Post, Washington Post, had the exposés on like Terror Tuesdays and the right. disposition matrix and all these crazy Correct. terms that they just have lunch and decide who to kill that week. Correct. And the argument was, well, yeah, Obama knows what he's doing and we can trust him because he reads St. Right. Augustine. Right? Correct. You know, it's, like, like, it's we're it, the good guys. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I take, 
you know, the requirements of just war seriously. Okay. All right. Tony, you want to jump in here? Oh my God. I don't know where to start because we've covered so much. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, just to quickly go off what we're saying, I mean, part of, part of this whole Trump foreign policy and war, war policy is he really doesn't have policy, right? I mean, Trump doesn't really understand strategy and long-term foreign policy. This is not of a real course. thing. Previous presidents justified, you right. know, their long, long-term long plays, you know, their, their treaties and their uh, trade negotiations to avoid wars or however they want to justify to us, which is, right. you know, interpret it however you want. Um, but it's interesting watching Trump now because I wonder if, you know, the, the pulling out troops from Somalia, I wonder if Trump is in his last few days trying to quickly keep a couple more promises so that yes. it's not really about his legacy. It's about what he does next, whether Correct. it's his big media company or if he runs again in four years. I think he's just crazy enough. And, 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 you know, I, I could see that happening. Correct. So I think he's already setting up. I, I did what I, I pulled troops out. I did this. And he's always going to have his stupid economy for two years, right? He'll have that forever. And that's their big thing is greatest economy in the history of the world. <laughs> but you lost it. Um, and he is leaving office with the highest stock market of all time. No, no, and, you he's, know, he, he's, you know, the va he's going to claim credit for the rapid vaccination and all the rest. So, right, exactly. So, you know, the fear here and it's I, it's backing up to the initial thing. And Ahmed and I love to beat up on the Lincoln Project because it's like, cool, you made some good ads. Like, could the Democrats not have done that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and I they wonder, don't know anybody in Hollywood, apparently. Yeah. yeah I wonder if actually you know, the big concern here for, at least for me is, I think Trump's gonna have a good shot in four years if he decides to do it. I'm actually, I think he, he'll have even a better shot than he did in 2016, because I don't necessarily have faith um, for two reasons. One, that the Biden campaign's gonna move the needle. Um, I think they're walking into a disaster. We've said this a million times. It's it's pretty bad to for any president to be walking. I mean, if, if even if Bernie got it to be walking into right. this is a you're set up for the Republicans to like they always do shed all responsibility and concentrate on the good part of the administration and then go look at look at you guys did and it's and and we're so stupid and and the Lincoln Project is the perfect um, example of I think the fundamental problem with the left and it's that we're weak right? right we we have we have no real leadership in the party because we all had to take our take our gloves off to kind of like get rid of trump but we i don't like biden you know i voted for biden i, I skipped to the to Me the too. polling thing yeah of course but i can't stand his policy i think he's terrible and you know i guess what i'm getting is what do you think the left needs to do these next four years um besides thanking the lincoln project i mean i would i would post their pictures like they like a like a wanted sign you know and get rid of them but right. how do how what what's and I don't, I don't know if you have the answer but what is your theory on what needs to happen in four years to one make sure we get another four but also make sure the democrats can pull back some of these uh, black voters and muslim right. voters even if right. it weren't a lot it was more than the first time that actually voted for yeah a racist. So yeah. Tony, you just had a very 
seamless transition to the other piece that I wanted to talk well, about with Sam, it. which yeah. is Biden and the America's Back um, a piece that you put out in, in The Guardian. Oh, yeah, that was a great piece. Yeah. So so go ahead, Sam. Yeah. So, I mean, that's still about foreign policy. And I think, you know, with Tony's question, we also have to incorporate big time kind of domestic policy. But mm-hmm. um, I'll give it a shot. I mean, first, I you know, I do agree with your your premise that, um, you know, Trump it doesn't have policy. He has, you know, noises and, um, and and yet, you know, we've had presidents before, probably all who, um, you know, evolve in office in part under the supervision of the people who are supposedly, um, you know, their servants. And the classic example would be George W. Bush and Dick <laughs> Cheney. Um, but, you know, it, it, it you know, when we talked before about um, kind of the, the 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 war posture, it's only fair to acknowledge, you know, that he did engage in big divergence kind of optically in mm-hmm. in relation to so-called multilateralism and so-called international institutions. But, you know, even with regard to more serious things like, you know, I mean, you know, not so much the Paris Agreement, which was more kind of optical itself, but, you know, the the Iran deal, you know, out 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 kind of, you know, um, out out friending the the Democrats in in relation to Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, because there was so much tension in the Obama years, in spite of the maintenance of the payments and, you know, the, the general, you know, I have your back. And and yet, even in the closing days, after all the Jared Kushner, you know, attempts to make peace, you you see, you know, a lot of national security cooperation, which goes back decades around killing this or that person um, in, in with Israel's help or even, you know, is with Israel calling the shots. So that that is different and it will change, you know, with Biden in charge. But, you know, I'm firmly of the belief that, you know, we need to recognize that the voters we have and that's um a a set of ethnic and racial minorities who are often much more conservative than we would like to think who care about uh you know law and order um more than woke millennials um whom i generally defend you know and and it's such a pleasure to see young people unlike in my politically dead youth kind of you know (laughs) take on the forces of evil um but you know especially with regard to the project of a you know transracial majority how do how do the democrats construct it it's never existed in a sense for the in american history um because of the endurance of white nationalism um and we just can't be afraid to kind of acknowledge that fact about the U.S. history, you know, FDR was a progenitor of, of of Donald Trump as much as Trump, you know, was like outrageous and and so forth, because that that the New Deal, even the, the progressive victory was a, a, a white nationalist victory of a kind for a, a white male working class. So we're in an unprecedented situation it's also an, an opportunity to put together a new a new american majority and that's where the never trumpers are i think most dangerous because 
what you have is a reversion to neoliberal centrism. Um, that's what the never Trump participation in a messy victory implies and, and epitomizes. And, you know, my take is that we're now in a race. The Republicans are um, at least, you know, making gestures and, you know, noises about their transformation into a class party. And now it's obvious that they can actually cross ethnic and racial lines in the way that George W. Bush hoped to do um, himself. Um, and Trump actually, I mean, frighteningly did better. Um, uh, and the, the Democrats are not committed to it because they're, you know, much more clearly, I think, um, you know, the, the, the neoliberal party, um, you know, they, they have, they have opponents of neoliberalism, but, um, and, and no, no party more than the Republicans have done more to, you know, um, champion economic freedom. And yet ideologically and rhetorically, somehow the Democrats have allowed the, the Republicans to steal a march under Trump, you know, at, at becoming a class party, you know, a working class party. So this, you know, it's my priors, but my sense, you know, Tony, is that the way you forge an, an, a, a victory in 2024 and beyond, because of, you're right, Trump isn't going away unless he drops dead, um, it is, is in that direction. And it's just ex an extremely ambiguous moment about who can can make the move. And I'm very, very scared that it's not going to be the Democrats. So you brought up this term neoliberalism and there's I've been reading a couple books about this and and it's uh, Quinn Slobodian's book is really interesting because it kind of blew my mind about <laughs> the, the role of the state and stuff like that. Right. There's there's like the traditional kind of view of neoliberalism, the definition for and, you know, not everybody reads about this stuff. Of so course. the basically, you know, low taxes, deregulation, smash the unions, um, get the state out of the way. Yep. Right. Um, but the sort of a more revisionist view that's coming out now is that the state actually has a pretty forceful role to play, which is effectively protecting the market and promoting right. certain like a certain ethos, right? That life is not about sort of a collaborative effort of living together, but rather it's competition, right? right. That the competition is sanctified and that's the sort of operative mode of life. Right. Um, and, and in that sense, unlike sort of like classic Marxist definition of ideology, which is like just mystification of reality, right? This is like a worldview. This yes. is like a total worldview that's quite insidious. Yeah. Um, and has sort of colonized all different precincts of life, what used to be considered public and so on. How do you push back against that, right? That is like a deeply entrenched view that people aren't, don't even acknowledge. It's just like, oh, that's just the way things are, right? right. That it's not even sort right. of something that most people would even, if you use the term neoliberalism, like, what's that? Correct. No, of course. I mean, it's, it's nothing short of amazing that, you know, when they're, the early adopters um, of the term, you know, including myself, got pushback, it, you know, as recently as four years ago from, you know, the, the kind of usual suspects. Um, it, it was it was it was like a serious debate 
Um, and that was true in kind of, you know, public forums like, you know, John, Jonathan Chait in the New York Magazine had, you know, a, a notable kind of neoliberalism denial episode, but also historiographically, Daniel Rogers, mm-hmm. um, you know, did a pretty uh, remarkable piece in Descent Magazine making the same move. Um, and nowadays, it's just widely accepted that this is the term we're going to use to refer to wh- whatever it is. Now, that, you know, isn't to deny a lot of definitional argument as for all general terms, you know, liberalism, conservatism, right. etc., nationalism. Um, and 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 you're right that there's a, a big move to kind of decenter or nuance uh you know, market fundamentalism as um, kind of what we seem to be talking about. Now, I think you can overcorrect. It's it's probably true that a lot of people, um, because of the rhetoric of the Republican Party in the United States and similar parties abroad, uh, understood neoliberalism to refer to the rhetoric of less state and more market. Um, Actually, that rhetoric captures a lot of the truth of neoliberalism but it's true that you know we always knew that you you need a kind of state um now that you can call it a night watchman state but in fact we know it's a state that does things like break you know pick union organizing you know and 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 vile and you know uses state violence to disrupt strikes and um and and does does things like you know fund massive militaries in the american case which the so-called neoliberals in american history were for and donald trump at the end even more than the you know the the democrats um you know quinn slobodian's brilliant point is that on a on the global scale neoliberalism was about um creating coercive international institutions particularly to take power out of, you know, newfound power out of the hands of post-colonial actors. But we can say we understand very clearly that even, you know, old school, you know, northern white majorities are very, you know, very powerless um, to set policy because the ascendancy of central banks and, you know, a lot of power has just been transferred out of their hands. Um, So, the point there would be to understand neoliberalism as not as, as an institutional and a governance project, and and I think that's that's essential. The question you, you rightly pose is, well, how do you oppose um, such a thing once you've understood what it is? Um, and I, you know, I think that's a tough thing. But at 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 the end of the day, I think we have to reclaim freedom um, and argue that our arguments about um, majoritarian economics are in the service of freedom, um, not just equality, not not merely freedom of individuals to enter the marketplace and remain undisturbed by government, but the creation of free agency, like what's the point um, otherwise? And I also think that you know, given the long-term alliance now between neoliberals and certain forms of religion, mm-hmm. um, we we need for progressives to say, you know, freedom is not just about getting along 
um, no matter what your worldview is, but it's, it, it's about a worldview of its own, which is like free, strong agency in the, you know, in the world. And that's kind of, you know, mystical sounding, but it's really about saying um, we need to present, you know, our politics as connected to a vision of the good life again. And I think liberals um, lost the ability to do so in part because they accepted the neoliberal picture that, you know, we're all in competition as individuals to basically like make it up ourselves um, in, and, and, you know, and keep our meaning in private, um, even as the public is about ruthless economic competition. And, you know, that's it's not easy to get more specific. Um, and I think we're only at the beginning collectively of figuring out what can be a winning program. We clearly on the basis of 2020 don't know. But my intuition is it's in those directions. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sounds like a good starting point because the def we have an operating definition right now, whether we acknowledge it or not, which is freedom is untrammeled private interest, right? That that's what freedom is, right? right. Just, just, you know, pursue your private ends right. and then you're free. Right. Um, but, you know, the whole sort of, you're then free to starve as well, right? Correct. <laughs> there's, there's, there's all these other things. And it that, forgets that, we're that not born free. Government it has a role among other actors in creating the institutional conditions for individuals to kind of become free and enjoy the kind of like powerful agency that we all aspire to have in life. Yeah, right. because what's left out is there's we're all free, but we leave out the collective responsibility to Correct. the structure of freedom. Correct. Right? Like w when you get when people get really rich who haven't been rich, they don't want to give their money up anymore. Correct. But you know that's for if, sure. If everybody could just realize that, well, I think also the problem is how much money does one need. And Absolutely. when you see a Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos is the epitome of what I think is the, I mean, it's not like I'm, this is my analysis, but he's the problem with the world. Yeah. How much, how, how can a human being live? And people are still ordering off Amazon knowing there's people starving and right. this guy just doesn't care. His own employees. Like, right. I just, and that, if, if that's allowed. No, but his point out. is, uh, you know, tremendous. And it, just to take a very basic domain like education, uh, you know, the privatization of U.S. education uh, over the years and um, is, you know, a, a scandal and and the resegregation of schools and the neglect of uh, so many of our fellow Americans, you know, marooned in so-called public education. Uh, you know, in very differentiated circumstances in different places, you know, that that's, that's not what anyone ever meant by, you know, the state's role in creating a, a free and equal citizenry, you know, so that, that, you know, Tony's, Tony's basic point is, is, you know, extremely important. And I would say, um, I'm all for like massive tax hikes and, you know, the, the point is not to, you know, just to stigmatize Jeff Bezos, although a certain amount of kind of 
you know, populist rhetoric seems to work, but also to say, here's the vision we're presenting that we can pay for if you elect a majority that taxes the rich. Um, because otherwise, you know, the populist hatred will, you know, wax and wane and, you know, who knows what policy outcomes it will have. Whereas I think we also have to say, not just what we're against, but what are we for? What do we need the money for? And what are we right. going to give the majority once it organizes itself to tax the rich? So you end um, your book, Not Enough, with this point about um, we're kind of at a new moment of socialism or barbarism, right? In different contexts, but the question sort of uh, recrudesces, you know, that so what, where do you think politically, right? So Bernie Sanders has done a lot to bring back the word socialism or democratic socialism into popular discourse and and maybe make it a little bit less scary um, for, for Americans, not totally, uh, and obviously uh, not enough, um, no pun intended. Um, but but um, what do you think here? Uh, is that a sort of way forward? Because Tony and I always are talking about we're kind of like stuck in the Democratic Party, and this is a point that that AOC made <laughs> like a week ago. It's like any other you know political system in the world, I wouldn't be in the Democratic Party. I'd, right. be, I'd be in some other party because you know the center of this party and certainly the right wing of the party, we are really ideologically opposed. But we're stuck with them, right? We're stuck with being. I'm going to be a Democrat. I'm going to be voting democratically. Mm-hmm. Um, how does one perhaps? promote the values of a a democratic socialism in the American political context. Before you answer, I just want to preface this with five years ago, no one knew who the hell Bernie Sanders was outside of people in politics. So for four years, for four and a half years, I actually think we've made huge strides. I mean, he he was running away with the primary before the senators ganged up on him and made everybody jump out. So I just want to preface it with I actually think it's in much better shape than you could ever imagine in this country. But go ahead, Sam. No, I, you're totally right. And, and honestly, this, the Sanders candidacies have been the most transformative events in my political lifetime, mm-hmm. just for that reason. And, you know, staggering relative to the American Cold War past and its, you know, afterglow that I knew. Um, you know, I, I think we have to work on multiple levels. Kind of intellectually, there's still this pretty serious objection that if you say you're a socialist, you still haven't said anything. Um, you know, <laughs> socialism is a 19th century word that is probably obsolete, like the word it was introduced to counter capitalism, because both of them like give you the sense that there's some you know take it or leave it choice or all or nothing system and you choose one or the other. Um, Rhetorically though, as Bernie showed, it can be massively useful. You know, obviously we're in a dispute in 2020 about whether it actually hurt the Democrats, but my take with AOC and, you know, so many others, you know, of whom I'm a cult follower is that that's, that's a partisan move by centrists Um, who are not owning their own electoral and policy failures is to blame, you know, a few socialists. Um, But in fact, as AOC said, that doesn't explain the election data. Um, You know, that's a a kind of 
you know, petty spat um, about some some short term stuff. But the long term thing is like, what is our idea and what is our program and how do we, you know, struggle within the Democratic Party? I think it's a very interesting moment because even while it seems clear to us that Trump could come back, it's not clear that Bernie Sanders will or should. Um, and, you know, among other things, politics is about personality. So we're, we're awaiting a new standard bearer. And, you know, the day that AOC turns 35, you know, is, you know, a, a day of, cons- is she there yet? I've, you know, but anyway, not yet. I don't think so. She, Plus, you know, which is amazing. Is, 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 <laughs> by, by 2024, she's, she's eligible. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge thing. And, you know, the others that, you know, in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, you know, the victory of Cori Bush over the, you know, yeah, Clay dynasty was extraordinary. I think the the emergence of such figures shows that the left needs to um, capitalize on its gains in urban areas because that's where the squad is from and figure out how it does make inroads um, in more suburban and rural areas and, you know, figure out what a, a class politics looks like that's that is is successfully transracial and avoids cultural war, uh, you know, time bombs. And that's, that I think is going to get contentious if we begin to have those conversations. Um, but it's necessary if we want to kind of take this word or some other one, you know, that we just choose because it has less baggage than socialism to define our, our, our agenda and, you know, box out the never Trump and other, you know, neoliberal and warmongering centrists and say to the American people and the world for that matter, that, you know, there's, there's another possibility, you know, our difficulty is that American history hasn't shown it, its availability yet, um, especially on, on class. Um, where you, you only have had class justice at the pr- price of white supremacy. And, you know, that is a huge nut to crack. But if we we can see that the, the possibility of a new majority is there, and then it's a matter of, you know, you know, strategy and tactics. Yeah, I, I actually, when you were when you were when you were talking about that, I, I can't help but thinking the two big problems with the Democratic Party are, the progressives have a Mayor Pete problem, and the Ma- and Mayor Pete has a black problem. Right. Um, and if they can all kind of figure this out together, yep. that's the answer. But yep. you can already see, and I and I think Mayor Pete's phenomenal on Fox News when he's taking right. these guys down. And sure. you could see it's you could see the he versus uh, him versus AOC, and whenever it is four to eight years, it's. Start. the roadmap's there, right? Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna go at it. Sure. Um, I mean, clearly, I think. We all know what side the three of us are on, right? But now it's convincing um, the the everyone else. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's it, it's it's not going to be a matter of decisive battles, you know, because it's just rare that you have such things that you know go the right way. It's going to be you know a little more progressivism, a little less neoliberalism. You know, we need technocrats, and you know. Uh, Buddha Judge and Andrew Yang and these sorts are, you know, have a role to play. But you know, the trouble is maybe that um, they're they're playing a role in a party that's remaining neoliberal and you know yes. relying too much on never Trumpers and you know the the Beltway 
blob national security establishment. And, and we and, just need to attack that and, and see how we can create a new constellation of forces. And what a better example of the current administration coming in, not going progressive by the battle state of Georgia. And we still don't have uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms or Stacey Abrams named to the administration. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if that doesn't tell you Pretty the shocking. issue with the party, Stacey yeah. Abrams, I, it's not, it, to me, it's not the Lincoln Project that got you Georgia. It's Stacey no, Abrams. Totally. And, and how is she not the first, one of the first five people given something in the agreed. White House? How yeah. is she not something? Are you nuts? Anyway, yeah, it's, it is. It is pretty staggering. So when I tell people I'm not super enthusiastic about the next four years, it's because well, your local no, totally. idiot could could have told we you. We do have just in the last 24 hours, an African-American general appointed secretary of defense. You know, footnote, he sits on the Raytheon board of directors. <laughs> yeah. But also, <laughs> second footnote, oh, man. second footnote, he's only been retired for a year or two, of course, yeah. Which yeah. is like, are we already coming in and breaking the rules? Like, right. I thought we were. I agree to with get that. On that. the other hand, yeah. No, I know. If you, you learn to... anything from from recent history, it's that civilians can sometimes be even more warmongering than <laughs> you know, generals, which is <laughs> they didn't realize, and when they, you know, in the face of Prussian history, right. made these rules in the 1940s. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> someone like me, who's who, who who's afraid of uh, bees, um, you know, if I've never seen war, I'm saying, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so let's end, Sam, let's end on a positive note or a positive vision here. All right. <laughs> if you could, if you had, you know, all this power and you could do an appointment in the Biden cabinet, oh. who, who would you pull, you know, what position do you think is really important and who would you put in there? Great question. I like this question. That is hard, you know, because <laughs> it's it's not something I, you know, think about in part because it's not, you know, in a sense my area, but um I would say I'd like to see Matt Duss, who was Bernie Sanders's um, kind of foreign policy advisor, brought in. Now he's he's playing nice uh, with Antony Blinken and others who's, who, who, in his defense, you know, future Secretary of State has done some left outreach. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've been pleased by the Council of Economics advisors' appointments, um, and that suggests that they're not utterly tone deaf. Um, so, you know, I'd love to see someone like Gabriel Zucman at the Berkeley economist who's mm -hmm. called for mm -hmm. like massive wealth taxation right. um, brought in. Um, so those on those two sides, just like more, um, more uh, of those who are, have, have kind of made clear when it counted their skepticism of the blob and, uh, in foreign policy and the neoliberals in economic policy. Okay. So there's, so there's some glimmers of hope that you've seen, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's good to hear. Um, okay. Well, Sam, thank you so much. Thank you. This is awesome. Uh, we learned a lot. And so when's the new book coming out? You have I think August, out? September, the title, uh, in, in, in this country, at least is humane, how the United States abandoned peace and reinvented war. Oof. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's going to be amazing. I can't wait to read it. Um, and for those, not of, uh, a comedy, by the way, no, there are a few, you know, <laughs> hilarious moments in the narrative, <laughs> right. a few jokes right. told, but you know, <laughs> they probably won't be noticed in the many negative reviews I get. <laughs> oh my God. All right, Sam. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah. Good to see you. Oh, Larger! Oh.
Glimmers of Hope. That'll be yeah. the next uh, yeah. article. I, Sam writes Glimmers of Hope. <laughs> Tiny little <laughs> Glimmers of Hope. I'm not even sure they're Glimmers. Yeah, right, like right. Speckles, yeah. The Stacey Abrams thing, that was a big, it's a big blunder already. It's, it's going to be the first big There's blunder. There's so many. I mean, Stacey Abrams, Elizabeth Warren, you know, I mean, if there you have somebody who's a progressive and a technocrat. Totally. You know, somebody who knows how government works and knows all the sort of... She's a law professor. She knows the legal architecture of the financial industry. You could obviously put her in the, you know, Consumer Protection Bureau or something like that, which she helped, like, found. But nope. Um, so, yeah, there's glimmers of hope and there's, you know, shadows as well. But, but um, my takeaway from that conversation is that the Democratic Party needs a, a full-on rethink of who they are. Maybe rebranding. Yeah. Well, rebranding, but also actually a sort of sort of inventory of who they actually are and who are we? What are we for? Because uh, on a sort of ground up level. Have you ever seen this um, video on YouTube years ago? It's a terrible comparison, but I like using this comparison. <laughs> I use it all the time. Domino's Pizza. Remember when we were growing up? It was like cardboard. Yeah, and then they did this whole marketing campaign. But but remember, then Domino's was suddenly everywhere again, mm -hmm. and they had like the pizza app, all this stuff. People were right, like right, not right. hating on it anymore. They did this whole rebranding where they did this, this like it's like a long form commercial. It's like ten minutes, and they were reading customer reviews, and they were like crying, like the people at Domino's. Oh, because like, they were like attacking them. It was like this is the most disgusting, <laughs> and it was horrible. And they did a whole campaign where they apologized. They were like, "Our pizza's trash." No way. We're going to fix it. And then remember they did that whole thing, which is like natural ingredients. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not defending. Right. Right. But right, it right. got, it got better. It got much better. Um, we, the Democratic so did party it actually get better or did the perception get, no, better? it got better. It got better. Okay. No okay. question. Hands down. You know, when you're, when you do what I do for a living and you're shooting in, I don't know, Oklahoma and you wrap at 10 PM at night, you're only right. getting dominoes and right. it's edible. Yeah. Okay. I defend okay. it. I'm a big defender okay. of Domino's. Okay. They need to hire the Domino's pizza people <laughs> to come in, and and they need to have Biden crying, reading fan mail, That's, and apologize, and look, then fix it. If Donald Trump can bring in the pillow guy and the Papa John's guy, I guess we can bring in the Domino's guy. You know why, why not? Yeah. It's America's pizza. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if they steal that slogan, we're suing them. We are. We are. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Read his uh, articles, by the way. Google him. He's fantastic. Yeah. So the the ones we talked about today are just you know, the tip of the iceberg, but um, but they're really good and they're they're very of the moment. So yep. the Guardian. He's he seems like he's got a kind of a regular column in the Guardian now. Um, the bunch that's mm -hmm. been coming out there, but also the New Republic. He writes in there a lot. So check it out. Um, okay, um, buy some t-shirts. Still got a few left. Mm -hmm. um, just go to the website and email the info at, we'll get right back to you. Um, That's right. No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by Amit Prakash. Um, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>